where people will speak derogatorily over your life. And if it's done long enough by certain people, you will find yourself adapting to the derogatory stuff that has been thrown at you. The next thing you know, you're looking at yourself through the eyes of the words that have been spoken over you. And can I tell you something? That identity that has been given to you by those words will hinder you from ever becoming the sons of Elohim. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the gospel according to John. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. During the time of Yeshua, there were three regional groups in Israel, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. The people were identified by their region. Samaria was located in the center of Israel and was the land given to Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Joseph was the son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. The Samaritan woman identified herself as a descendant of Jacob. Understanding the history that leads to the encounter between Yeshua and the woman at the well will help us understand what is happening here in John chapter 4. During their conversation, Yeshua ministers to the woman about living water in reference to the Holy Spirit. Yeshua also speaks to the woman about everlasting life. The message title in this podcast is Jacob's Well and the Samaritans, an encounter with Yeshua. So, let's study. Brothers and sisters, again, we're in John chapter number four, and I'm going to be talking with you today about Jacob's well and the Samaritans, and then for a subtopic, a visitation with Yeshua. In John chapter four, because we're going to be dealing with a variety of passages, as a matter of fact, I believe that we're going to go all the way down to right around verse 21 or 22. And then I have some other passages that we're going to be discussing in the process of talking about these particular verses. So instead of reading them, we're just going to go through them verse by verse. Amen. In verse one, John chapter four, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Yeshua made and baptized more disciples than John. And then in verse two here in parentheses, though John, though Yeshua himself baptized not, but his disciples in the previous chapter in chapter three, the Bible says that John's disciples came to him and that they told him that the one John bore witness to was baptizing, and many went to him. And as we discussed last week, it appeared that John's disciples were concerned that Yeshua was taking disciples from John. But John went further and told them, says, listen, I bore witness to all of you that he was the one. I'm not the Messiah. He is the one. 
and he told them that he was not worthy to untie his shoestrings or his latchets. And he told the people then that Messiah was the lamb of Elohim who takes away the sins of the world. So he reminded them of that. And yet he said he must decrease. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the things that we find ourselves like John, that when Messiah comes in our lives, the old us must decrease. That Messiah in us may increase. And the more we commit ourselves to that, the more we become. See, it's not just about salvation for us to come to a confession and then to wait for the good old by and by for him to come so we can be taken out of this mess. No, we're supposed to take authority and occupy while we're here. There is an authority and a power that we're supposed to walk in and not become subject to the authorities and powers around us. Because we live in the same, I would say, under the same conditions as the first man and woman who had been given authority to take dominion. I've repeated as we were going through um, Genesis that after the flood, when Noah and his sons came off the ark, father gave them, he says, listen, I have put the fear of you in all the animals. He says, I've put the fear. Now you got to understand that Noah on this boat with two of every kind of unclean, clean beasts, serpents, spiders, snakes, tigers, lions, bears, all of the kind of things that people today will demonstrate fear toward when the Almighty said he has put the fear of them or the fear of us in them. And this is interesting if you notice that most wild creatures, most creatures, period, even the creepy things, when they see you, they don't come at you. They have a tendency to hide and watch you to see if you know you got authority. Now, if they recognize you don't have authority, what are they going to do? If they recognize that you have fear, what do you think is going to happen? But the Almighty has put the fear of man in all of the creatures, and that has not been rescinded at any time in history. And so man, he said, is to take dominion. We are supposed to be taking dominion and walking in authority. And this is so important for us. And so this is going to happen as the human you the kernel you decrease. The more Messiah in you increase, the more authority you begin to walk in. When Messiah went into the synagogue, we'll get into that. Those demons recognized his authority. They recognized his power. When he preached and taught, those 
religious leaders even, and the people who listened to the religious leaders realized that he didn't preach like them. And there's something to this, brothers and sisters. I think this would be a good time. I received this letter, and I know that there's a few others. They may have been taken. No, they're here. I was going to wait and share a testimony, but I think this is a good time to share this one. I received uh, this card in the mail, and it's dated 9-9. It says, hi, I just want to say thank you. I was watching your service online when you stood in the gap and prayed against Hurricane Dorian. Thank you for the understanding you have, knowing you could, that you had the power and authority to do so, and the courage, faith, and boldness to do it. I have no doubt that our Heavenly Father heard your prayers and others who understand the power and authority backing those who are truly fully his. So thanks again from me and from all the thousands along the East Coast who were spared the devastation that was unleashed on the Bahamas. Now, I just so happened to have a testimony from the Bahamas. I'll share that one a little bit later, but this one I was compelled And I am not in a financial position to support HOI, your ministry at this time in my life. But I do understand how the spirit realm comes against us and our families. I will commit to covering you and your family, HOI ministry, the Hebrew Roots University in prayer. Keep up the good work. And I thought when I read that, because see, for me, it's no big deal to stand and to make declarations and to decree because of what I know. But I also know that when we do that, we take a lot of flack from people because we're speaking to a storm. And then there are those who are affected by it, who for whatever reason, are some of the same people who give us flack for doing it. It's like they won't do it, experience some things, and it's not like everybody who experienced some things are not people who will stand and walk in that authority. Because one thing I do know, according to the scriptures, is first of all, we have to stand. And when we've done everything we know to do, we continue to stand. And so even though you may declare, you may speak something to a particular situation and you may not necessarily see what you're speaking to come to pass, that doesn't give you excuse to stop standing. The only thing that will give you excuse to stop standing is that you don't believe. Well, if I believe, why is it happening? Well, because it happened doesn't necessarily mean you stop believing. Some things are simply tests. Some things, Father, give us to test us to see if we will walk by faith. And oftentimes when people may not necessarily see the outcome of what they're trusting and believing, they'll give up on their faith and then try to take matters into their own hands 
and start speaking stuff that's not in alignment with the word and start doing things that are not in alignment with the word and they find themselves in worse circumstances and situations than they were before they started. If you don't see it, does that mean you don't believe? And if you don't believe because you don't see, what are you walking by? You see it? We have to stand and trust and believe even when we don't see. Now, the beauty of what we're standing on is that we're standing on the word. Now, here's what I've learned about the word. When his word go forth, he watches over it. When my word goes forth, <laughs> I got to watch over it. And you'll find some of us are not good at watching over our words. Why? Because when we say we're going to do something and we don't do it, we haven't watched over that word. Father says when his word goes forth, he watches over it. He makes sure that when his word goes forth, it's not going to come back empty. No one will ever be able to say, Father said something and then he didn't do it. And if we are following his example, nobody should ever say that you said something and you didn't do it. Because if your word has no value, how much value do you think his word coming out of your mouth has? And this is why we have to live our faith, not just talk. You got to walk this thing. And know that as you're walking it, people are looking to see if there's any sincerity and genuineness to your walk. And the moment you don't do what you said, that's, that's it. There it is. There it is. I knew I was dealing with a hypocrite. We are not to be people who say one thing and then do something else. And so, the Bible says, though Yeshua himself baptized not, but his disciples. During the time of Yeshua, there were three regional groups of people living in Israel. This is important because this next passage that we're going to look at in John, it corroborates or it verifies or bears witness. Here is one of those maps I got off of Google. And this is a map during the time of Yeshua, Israel. And you'll notice that at, at the top in the shaded area, there is Galilee, there's Samaria in the blue area, and then below there is Judea. Now, this is another view of it in the red circles. And this is the Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. And Idumea is part of the land of Judea. If we were to look at a map of the 12 tribes, which we will, because it's important to the study here that we're doing, we'll see the geography of the tribes and where they ultimately uh, settled along with their timeline or their territorial line. But here, during the time of Yeshua, there were three regional groups. And those regional groups was Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. Now, what's interesting about these particular regions is that the people were identified by their region. 
Now, you don't necessarily see this, but you have to make the connection. For instance, when we're in Acts, in Acts chapter 1 or chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit was given, the Bible says, how is it that we hear in our own language? Are not all these Galileans? So what's a Galilean? A Galilean was a person from the region of Galilee. Now, we're going to be dealing with the region of Samaria, and the people of Samaria was called Samaritans. And then we look at Judea, and the people of Judea was called Judeans or Jews. Now, the term Jew doesn't show up until after the Babylonian captivity. No one, no one, let me say this again, no one was called a Jew until after Babylon. And this is important for you to know and to understand because Jehovah didn't give the name Jews to the Judeans, the Babylonians did. The Babylonians called them Jews. Now, in Hebrew, the difference, Abraham was called a Hebrew, but he was not called a Jew. And biblically, when it comes down to the people who were called Jews, they were the descendants of Judah. And where was Judah? In Judea. It was in Judea. And so the people of Judah was given the land of Judea. And there were two major tribes in Judah. And that was Judah and Benjamin. But there was also a lesser tribe in Judea. And that was Simeon, as you'll see in the map that I will show you here in a moment. But during the time of Yeshua, there were these three regional groups. The Galilee, Galileans, Samaria, the Samaritans, Judea, the Judeans, or the Jews. All three groups are mentioned in verse number three. Yeshua left Judea and he departed again unto or into Galilee. I'm going to go back to this map and I want you to see something here. Because according to John, and even I was reflecting on a sermon, on a series of sermons that I heard growing up. How many of you heard that the Jews refused to go through the land of Samaria? If you've ever heard that, let me see your hands. Now, what's interesting about this is that it's virtually impossible to get from Judea to Galilee without going through Samaria. Look at the map. You got to go on the other side of the Jordan or around the Mediterranean. It's virtually impossible. And so, and I'm going to show you scripturally some things that will verify what I'm saying because I heard these things in a sermon and then I tried to look for proof. I remember the sermon so well that they wouldn't go to the point to where I thought, okay, there must be a verse that says that the Jews don't go through Samaria. 
that they go around. And it's like, okay, if they go around and where is that sermon or where is that verse or where is that passage? And if they go around, how do they get around? You see, so if anybody's coming from Galilee up to Judea, chances are they're going to come through Samaria. But let me also point out to you as we'll see, and you got to have some really keen eyes to see this, but I just want to point it out anyway, that Samaria was a region, but it also had a capital city called Samaria. So you got a city called Samaria in a region of Samaria. It's like having a city called North Carolina, the city of North Carolina in the state of North Carolina. No, I'm not trying to get North Carolina. You can be quiet. Are you with me? Hallelujah. (laughs) Technology is good when it works right. (laughs) But anyway, there is New York City in the state of New York. So sometimes when people say, I'm from New York, I say the city or the state. Because I know that there is a New York City in the state of New York. And there is a Samaria city, the capital of Samaria, the region. So we find all these things that hopefully will give us some insight. So he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And here's where it comes to realization. And he must needs go through Samaria. Now, I've had people take this verse and use this verse as a proof text that in order to get to Galilee, you don't have to go through Samaria. But could it be that this verse is actually saying in order for him to get to Galilee, he has to go through Samaria? Could it? It could. (laughs) A lot of it has to do with the context and the sermon. Because people can preach things and it put in my mind, it put in my mind that there is another way to get there, which obviously to go around. And now as I'm I'm looking for the possible route of how he would go around Samaria, he's got to cross over to Jordan or go by boat by the Mediterranean Sea. Verse five, then cometh he to a city of Samaria, a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Sychar means drunken. It's probably, and whenever I see this probably, it always raises a flag for me because what it's saying is that the person is not 100%. So probably possibly, maybe, those terms. And these are the kinds of things that if I'm reading somebody's book who is presenting a revelation and in the opening portion of the book or the opening chapter of the book, they say, could it be or maybe or possibly or probably, I know I'm dealing with a thesis. I know I'm dealing with a theory. I know I'm dealing with something that now a person is going to take the rest of this book to try to prove this theory. 
And therefore, by the end of the book, they may think that they have proven a theory, but it's still a theory. And this is why when it comes down to trying, you know, people want me to read this and read that and watch this. And as soon as I hear probably, possibly, maybe, could it be in the opening parts of it, I know what I'm dealing with. And so everything else now is to build this theory into some kind of fact. You can't make a theory of fact. If it starts out as a theory, all the information that you present supports the theory, but your supporting information don't make your theory a fact. And so for me to try to explain to someone why those are the first things you have to look for, and I'm mindful of that when I'm writing, and you should too. And so this word, Sychar, probably another name for the town of Shechem, a town in Samaria near the web of Jacob. And so this is why geography and maps make so much a a difference. That if you look at this map, and again, I told you it would take some strong eyes, but that red arrow there is pointed to the place called Sychar, where Yeshua was. And I, I point out this on the map because This is a map during the time of Herod. And Sychar is believed to be another name for Shechem at the time of Yeshua. And this is a map of the 12 tribes. And Shechem is geographically within a manner of meters, if you would, of Sychar. Now, on this particular map, the land of the 12 tribes, there is no Sychar. But on the, on the map in the time of Yeshua, there is no Shechem. And so this would be a proof text, if you would, to say, okay, there's a good possibility that Sychar and Shechem is the same place, but they are at least in proximity of one another. And so Sychar is not mentioned in the Old Testament and looking for Shechem in the New Testament is difficult to find. Now, maybe some of you all followed it, but, and here's one of the the challenges you have, you have when you're trying to interpret and become, you know, accurate in your interpretation and understandings and translations is that words in the New Testament have a Greek term and words in the Old Testament have a Hebrew term. And sometimes the words in the Hebrew are interchangeable with another word in the Hebrew and the same thing in the Greek, like in the English, you got there and there, you see, so this is their land, but their land is over there. You see, it sounds the same, but it's different meanings. And these are the same things with any language that you deal with. And so even in dealing with Hebrew and even in dealing with, with Greek, oftentimes you become the person who have to appropriate the word based on the context that the word is used in. 
In our discipleship, we talk about the context principle. And so when you're using a context principle, it's like, okay, you got to make a judgment. And in this judgment, this judgment, what you have to make a judgment is based on the context in which this is used. Interpreters and translators have to make judgments. And this is why sometimes they add words or put words in italics or, or put parentheses to highlight a particular thing so that you understand what they're trying to communicate. It can be interpreted as somebody is trying to mess with the scriptures or it could be interpreted as like, yeah, we're messing with the scriptures, but we're trying to show you how we're messing with it so that you can accurately see what it is. We're not trying to hide it. And because we couldn't properly and appropriately factually, we have to let you know this is what we did and here is why or, or what, and this is why it's important to read the instructions in your Bible before you start reading your Bible. And I'm not talking about the instructions as far as the word. I'm talking about the instructions that tell you how to use the tool is like in the manual, in the beginning of the manual, there is the owner's manual. It tells you what liberties the writer did took. I mean, if they're authentic or genuine and they're not trying to mislead, but most Bibles have instructions in the Bible before you actually get to the Bible. And when I buy Bibles, I look for these instructions if I'm going to purchase it because it highlights to me the liberties that the author of the Bible, see how many of you know Jehovah didn't write this book? Now, just because somebody stand up and say, this is the word of God, you have to understand Jehovah didn't write it. His word is in it, but there's a lot of words in it that is not his. And we have to rightly discern and divide. We have to be students of the word so that we're not misleading or misled. And I, I can't tell you how many times that I've been in conversations and debates with people only to realize through the debate and the conversation that I'm not debating scripture, I'm debating commentary. In other words, the side notes of the author that is in the book that becomes, see, if I've got a, a study Bible with the author's notes in the book and somebody say, this is the word of God, guess what? Everything in the book now becomes the word of God, even the commentary and the side notes. And you got people arguing side notes in commentary as if it's biblical or scriptural. It's the author's opinion. And how many of you know, if a Pentecostal is writing a Bible, they're going to write it from a Pentecostal perspective. If a Baptist is writing a Bible, guess what? They're going to write it from a Baptist perspective. And so the commentary is going to be biased. And it's important for us to know that because people got their favorite Bibles with their notes and things of that nature. And they don't realize sometimes they're putting their faith in the writer, not the word. So moving right along, Sychar is believed to be part of Shechem. Now here's a land of the 12 tribes. And this map is one of those maps that it'll show you the boundaries of these tribes 
And right there in the center is Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim was the son of Joseph. Now, Joseph, how many of you know Joseph had a foreign wife? Yes, he did. Joseph was married to an Egyptian. And the, the one who gave Joseph his wife was Pharaoh. Her name was Asenath. She was the daughter of a priest. How many of you know the priest that she was the daughter of was not serving Jehovah? But Joseph was married to a foreign woman and their sons became two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now I'm laying this out because there's some things that happened in Nehemiah and in Ezra where Nehemiah and Ezra forced the individuals to divorce their foreign wives. And there were several priests who had married foreign wives. But here's what you have. Well, let me get to that when I get to it. Samaria was located in the center of Israel and was the land given to Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, the son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Samaria has a long history dated all the way back to the time of Jacob sojourning through the land. It was in Shechem that the son of King Hamar that fell in love with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Now Jacob had these sons, but he had this one daughter and her name was Dinah. And there was a fellow who saw Dinah and he was smitten with her and he lay with her. Shechem wanted to marry Dinah. So the sons of Jacob deceitfully persuaded him and the men of his city to get circumcised. And while they healed, Simeon and Levi murdered the men and spoiled the city. And this is in Genesis and you'll find it in chapter 34 and some other references. Jacob had bought the land for a hundred pieces of silver and built an altar. And in Genesis 33, it says, after Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar and called it Eloi Ro Israel, the mighty Elohim of Israel, or the mighty father of Israel. But the point is, is that Jacob bought this land. And how many of you know, Joseph was Jacob's firstborn to the wife that he wanted. Now, it was never Jacob's intent to have four wives, but he was tricked. He tricked and he got tricked. He only wanted one wife, and that was the one that he willingly worked seven years only to find out that Laban was bigger deceiver than he was and used a tribal uh, law that before the younger daughter could get married, the older daughter has to be married. And so Jacob ends up with the older sister of the woman he wanted to marry. But not only with the sister of the woman he wanted to marry, by the time he left Laban's house, he had the sister and her handmaiden and the wife, Rachel, and her handmaiden, and the two handmaidens became two of the mothers of several tribes of Israel. So Jacob ends up with four wives when he only wanted one, 
and 12 sons by all of them, and each of the wife had a firstborn. So according to the law of firstborn, now when Jacob met Joseph's sons, he prayed over them. Remember, he swished his hand. And because Jacob was his favorite. Now, why? Because Joseph was from the woman that he loved. Not that he didn't love the others. He wasn't willing to work for them, but he got tricked into having them. So now he takes this land, the first piece of land he buys, and he gives it to Joseph. But how many of you know there is no land of Joseph? If you were to look on this map, there is no land of Joseph. There's no such thing as the, the land of Joseph. There's the land of Ephraim and the land of Manasseh, who were the sons of Joseph. So Joseph gives the land that has been given to him to his sons, and they become the land of Ephraim, the land of Manasseh, which were the leaders of the northern tribes. When the split took place between the southern and the northern after Solomon was killed. Now, all of this is history, but if you don't know the history, you can't understand what's happening here in John chapter four. And so I'm trying to lay out this history so you understand what's going on here in John chapter four and not be the subject of people preaching sermons saying things that you can't find in the Bible. And Joseph Bones in, in Joshua, once the children of Israel came out of Egypt, Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried where? At Shechem, in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And so Yeshua is now in the land of Joseph's descendants. This is important. Verse 6, the Bible says, Now Jacob's well was there. We're in Sychar, which is possibly believed to be Shechem. Yeshua, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. While Yeshua was at this well in Sychar, a woman comes to draw water. Verse 7, There cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Yeshua said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were going away into the city to buy meat. So he sent them to go into the city. They went. He stayed at the well. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And this is a key piece too, because it's history. The Jews and Samaritans had a contentious history going back to the time of the return from Babylon. Now, when they returned from Babylon, it is no secret that the Samaritans were looked down upon and despised by the Judeans or the Jews. However, Yeshua passed through Samaria on several occasions as he went back and forth between Judea and Galilee. This wasn't the first time. Why? Because it's almost impossible to get from Galilee to Judea or Jerusalem without going through Samaria. During one of those journeys, Yeshua encountered 10 lepers whom were healed and instructed to go show themselves to the priest. Now I find this to be quite fascinating 
because there are 10 lepers. And when he healed them, he says, go and show themselves to the priest. Now, my question is the Samaritan priest or the Levitical priest? It doesn't say. Now, only one came back to give thanks and he was a Samaritan. But let's look at the land. Luke 17. And when he saw them, Luke chapter 17. For those who feel we should be reading from the book, you should love this. Luke chapter 17 here, it says in verse 11. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. When he sent out his disciples in Luke, they goes into the towns of Samaria. Now, in one particular case, he tells them not to go into the towns of Samaria, but in another place, he says, go into Samaria. And so in this particular case, in verse number 11, it says, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him 10 lepers that were lepers, which stood afar off. And so picking this up in verse 14, and when he saw them, he said unto them, go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified Elohim and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Yeshua told a story about a priest, a Levite and a Samaritan when asked, and we looked at this last week, whereas what we were dealing with eternal life. What is eternal life? That was last week, wasn't it? Or week before. Nevertheless, we were teaching on it. And one of the lawyers asked the question, and this is what started the conversation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That was the question. And Yeshua said, you know the commandments, love Elohim with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is likened to the first, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Hmm? Oh, which is the greatest of the commandments? Yeah, which is the greatest? Thank you. Which is the greatest? Well, let's, let's look at it. Luke 10, back in the Bible, y'all, verse number 25. I love when people help me minister. I just have to be careful that I'm not agreeing with something that is not accurate. In verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest it? And he answered, saying, thou shalt love Jehovah, your Elohim with all. So he asked the question, how do you understand the law? But the response was, what is written in the law? And then how do you understand it? So what was the question? How do I inherit eternal life? He points him to what? To the law. And then he says, well, how do you understand it? And that's when he began to give these commandments. But, but see, these commandments were not necessarily connected because he speaks and he says, this is how I understand them. 
Love Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said unto them, you have answered right. This do and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself wanted to know who was his neighbor. And so Yeshua actually began this conversation. And in the conversation he was talking about, there was a priest and a Levite. There was a man who had been injured and left for dead. A priest came by, he went around. A Levite came by, he went around. A Samaritan came by and he helped the man, took him to the inn, paid for his stay, and then left and told the man that when I come back, whatever it takes to take care of him, I will cover his expense. And then Yeshua told the lawyer, go do like the Samaritan. Go do like the Samaritan. Now imagine in the context, if they were despised people, Yeshua is saying, be like the Samaritan. Why would I want to be like that? Can any good thing come from Samaria? Now, they didn't say that, but that's the idea because they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritan people. And so Yeshua uses it. So now we got the, the leper who's been healed who's Samaritan, the Samaritan. And you know the term good Samaritan? How many of you have heard that term? You know, it's not in the Bible. Just another one of those little nuggets because we use it like it is. You heard the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, is there bad Samaritans? Well, obviously there's some bad Samaritans if there's some Good Samaritans, but it comes from a sermon. It's a sermon. It's not a passage. It's not a scripture. And so further down, you'll see these verses. Now, after the return from captivity, hatred developed between the Samaritans and the Jewish remnant of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Samaritans sought a share in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but were firmly refused. Sanballat of Samaria became a serious hindrance to Nehemiah's work. And you can find this in Nehemiah 2, 10, 19, and Nehemiah chapter 4, 6 through 7. Now, Sanballat's son-in-law name was Manasseh, but he was also a grandson of the Jewish high priest and one of many who refused to divorce their foreign wives. And so what happened is Nehemiah and Sambalat, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, one of the priests said, while we were in captivity, we did some things that were against the law. And one of the things we did that were against the law, because the priests had strict restrictions on who they could marry and their conditions or circumstances. And we've married foreign wives and we've had children by them. And so what we are going to do, and this was not a proposal from the Almighty, by the way, this was a proposal from the people in aligning based on what they had read. And so what you have is you have a people who recognize they had violated the Torah. And now they want to rectify their actions by putting away the wives, but not only the wives, the children. Now I'm going to tell you something. That's a cruel thing to do. But in their heart, they were justified with what they did. And Nehemiah and Sanballat allowed this to take place. And there were some who says, we're not going to do that. Now, whether they were right or wrong, I'm not here to judge. But 
I do find that Father, he did not judge the fact that Joseph married a, a foreign woman. Even a reminder of the foreign wife was his foreign children, Ephraim and Manasseh, which is two of the tribes of Israel. And between the two have the largest portion of the land of Israel. Now, I'm going to tell you something that is troubling to me, and it should be any troubling to any Bible scholar, is the idea of a people who want to make Israel the land of the 12 tribes a homeland for one. But in order to do this, there has to be an effective plan put in place to make all 12 tribes Jews. And so the writers and interpreters over history have developed this ideology that if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile because there's only two groups of people and that's Jews and Gentiles, not 12 tribes with 12 tribal lines. See, in order for the Knesset or the government of Israel to be true to what is written, they have to honor the boundaries that was established by the Almighty in giving each tribe its own land. So now there is no land of Ephraim. There is no land of, of Manasseh in the land. It's all Israel with no divisions other than the areas for the Palestinians. And this idea has been sold to Bible-minded people that that's okay. When in fact, it violates the commandments of Jehovah. Now, I can tell you this, that each piece of property that the father gave, he specifically gave it. And in the Torah, in the Torah, there is a return of not only family land, but there is a return of tribal land. And the whole year of Jubilee is all land returns back to its tribal owner. There was even specific instructions concerning someone marrying outside of a tribe. If you want to marry somebody outside of a tribe, the land that belongs to you cannot be transferred outside the tribe. Now you can go, but the land stays. And father is very serious about the land he gave because he specifically throughout the Torah subscribed certain parcels of land to certain people and gave Israel specific instructions concerning the geography of the land. That still holds true today, even though in the time of Yeshua, there was the land of Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. Today, it's all the land of Judea or those who want to ascribe it being a homeland for the Jews. Well, well what about the tribes, brother? Well, we're all Jews. 
And I've said before, trying to make all of Israel Jews is like trying to make all Hispanics Mexicans. You can't do that. You can't take Africa and make them all Kenyans. You can't take Europe and make them all Londoners or, 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 or whatever. You all understand what I'm saying? You, you just can't do that. But if they can pull the wool over people's eyes by using the scripture, not using the scriptures, brothers and sisters, using teachings. This is a work of teachings. This is not a work of scripture. It's interpretation of scripture design to malign. And that's unfortunate. But our eyes have to be open so that we can see what's at work and we don't buy the lies that many of around us willingly swallow while straining at gnats, making big things out of little things and making little things out of big things. So he tells them to put them away. Ezra and Nehemiah drive for racial purity led to the exile of this of many Jews from Jerusalem. A large band of dissident Israelites also moved to Samaria. The rift between the peoples politically and religiously now has become permanent. According to tradition, and this is tradition, Manasseh persuaded the Samaritans. There's nothing in scripture that shows us this. According to tradition, to abandon many of their idolatrous practices. And with Zenbalat's building on Mount Gerizim of a schematic temple for his son-in-law, the sect of the Samaritans were established. So at the time of Yeshua, there was actually a Samaritan temple. And we'll get into that either tomorrow or next week because the woman says, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews say Jerusalem is the place of worship. And we'll, we'll get into that because it's worth. It was from this time, too, that Samaria became a refuge for dissatisfied and rebellious Jews with the consequent use of Samaritan as a term of abuse for rebellious Jews. In other words, when you call a Jew a Samaritan, those were fighting words. Yeshua was called a Samaritan and accused of having a demon. John chapter 8, 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hath a demon? Now you imagine them telling Yeshua the Savior who came to save their butts. You're Samaritan and not only are you a Samaritan, you got a devil. And then they accused him of casting out devils by the power of the devil. You cast out devils by the power of Beelzebub. And that's when he let them know. It's like, you know what? You guys have gone too far now. Because you are attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to demons. That's blasphemous. And sometimes people will blaspheme. They will blaspheme you and your faith to try to cause you to be indignant of the path that you're traveling. And if you're not careful, you will allow that to happen. Think about some of the stuff. Here's how they say it today. You guys have gone back under the law. It's like going back under the law. Now, let me tell you something. I was never under the law. Never. I wasn't born up under the law. The only law I was under was the laws of men in the respective city that I grew up in. So how am I going back under the law? Never was under it. 
And the people who were under it were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and of course the Herodians, but the law they were under was not Jehovah's law. There was their respective denominational sect law. Because Yeshua taught them and says, Moses gave you all the law, but none of you are keeping it. How can they be keeping it if he say none of them are keeping it? And if they're not keeping it, then what are they keeping? The traditions of men. And these same traditions are at work today in denominations. And some of us have experienced denominational traditions to where we've questioned the traditions of our denomination and through the questioning of these traditions begin to put more emphasis on what was written. And when we put more emphasis on what we, was, was written, we saw stuff we didn't see while we were following our traditions. And now we're questioning traditions and what is written. And then we have to make a decision when we get to that point. I've been following traditions, but here's what is written. Yesterday, I had the unique opportunity of ministering to two separate people. One, I was, you know, yesterday is Friday. I'm trying to get ready for the Sabbath. I'm making my rounds. And I have on my House of Israel menorah shirt and the name of Jehovah on it, very similar to, for those of you who can see my, my C-seats, it's got the, this emblem on it, and I have the same emblem on a shirt. And so I'm passing this guy at Sam's, and he looks at it, and he doesn't see, I guess he sees the Hebrew, but he sees the menorah. So he stops me, and he asks me about the menorah. And his wife's a missionary, and I invited him to check out a website and maybe one day he might come. I don't know. But in the conversation, I explained to him where we are, where we stand, what we believe. And he wanted to go with the, the law stuff, you see. And it's a typical conversation whenever you're encountering individuals who are under grace, as if being under grace is something different than being under law. The fact of the matter is, is that if, if there was no law, there would be no need for grace. The fact that grace exists is because of the law. And without grace, grace for what? The grace there is Father not holding us to account for ignorance. But Paul would teach I don't want y'all to stay ignorant, brethren. You know, now that you've come into to the right understanding, see, Paul, I explained to him, Paul was never keeping the law. I explained to him that if you look at what was written and you look at Messiah and what he said, he said, Moses gave you all the law, but none of you are keeping. But he don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that because when they think law, they think that the Jews of Yeshua's day was keeping the law and Yeshua came to deliver them from the law that they were keeping. When he told them, no, you weren't keeping the law. Moses gave it to you, but none of you are keeping it. And he was calling them back to the law, which is what the prophets do. The prophets were responsible for calling the people back to the commandments. And Moses, Aaron, 
the prophets, Yeshua, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Because getting saved, now you have to have some kind of standard by which you live your life and conduct yourself in a community of people surrounded by folks in the world who are trying to keep the laws of men, but have no regard for the law of the kingdom. And so I realized that um, I'm not going to be able to get this done. In fact, those encounters are opportunities for us to make for future encounters. See, this is one of the ingeniences of the Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, I said it. See, the Jehovah's Witness developed an ingenious system. They're not going to be having these happenstance, you know, sidewalk Sam Club meetings. They want to come to your house and crack the Bible. They want to sit down at your table. They want to walk you through. And see, we may not agree with the Jehovah's Witnesses process, but how many of you know every one of those Jehovah's Witnesses that go out on the street have gone through a discipleship process? And all of them have to go. So they come into the kingdom hall and they disciple them. They train them. They equip them and then send them out two by two, just like Yeshua. They may not have the right message, but they got a process. And the people that go out are committed to the process. They commit to the process, not by going out, but by being equipped to go out because they can't go out until they equipped. So discipleship. And so the Samaritans had a different way of seeing things, no different than denominations. Although Yeshua was thirsty for natural water during their conversation, Yeshua ministered to the woman about living water in reference to the Holy Spirit. And I'm getting to a point to where I'm going to close this because I know we've been going a while and I don't want to keep you too long. I am going to close this at some point. I got to find a good closing point. Verse 10, Yeshua answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of Elohim and who it is that said to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Now, by implication, if he had nothing to draw with, it wasn't the kind of well that we're familiar with where there's already a bucket down in the hole and a string to bring it up. He had nothing to draw with, which also should suggest to you that she brought her own means of drawing water from the well. Now, it doesn't say that, but if he could have got his own water, he wouldn't have need to ask her. And she said, you don't have a way to get the water. Right? Because the woman said to him, sir, you got nothing to draw with. And that well is deep. The woman identifies herself. And this is, this is another fascinating piece. Because I've heard a lot of the same sermons you all have heard, probably from different leaders and maybe from some of the same ones. 
But the woman identifies herself as a descendant of Jacob. And one of the things that this did to me, and it still do to me, because it affects me. It affected me so deeply. I didn't even realize how deep it affected me until I realized it affected me deep. <laughs> and here's, here's why. We live in a society to where people struggle with their identity. And with the identity that we have, oftentimes how we see ourselves is based on the picture people have painted us of. Whether it be our mom, our dad, our siblings, our society, our loved ones, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, you name it. People say things that cause you to, if you receive what has been said, it causes you to identify yourself as that. For instance, today, there are people who are proud to be Jewish, Jews, when the Bible doesn't call them Jews. Now, the Bible does in, in the translation, but if they're Jews today, there should have been Jews who were delivered out of Egypt and given the law that was given to supposedly the Jewish people. But there was no law given to Jewish people because there were no Jews to give the law to. The law was given to the Israelites. But today, people have accepted a term that was initially derogatory. It was a derogatory term. Now, I know about derogatory terms and people accepting those terms because being a person from Mississippi, I mean, there was probably not many days that went by that I wasn't called a nigger. Children called me nigger. I was born in an era of cotton picking. Now, people say, stop that cotton picking mess. No, cotton picking to us was cotton picking. It was not a phrase that people use today. And being, you know, Mr. Charlie and Mr. Sam and all those people. And so to be called boy when you're a grown man, to be called nigger by a child, these were derogatory terms designed to make you remember your place, boy. And in the time, you can't do anything because you'd be strung up. And so now we live in a society to where young black men are calling each other, that's my nigga, that's my dog, that's my boy. And what I'm saying is that there comes a point to where people have a way of adopting derogatory things that was, that was said to them in the idea of demeaning them. And let me tell you, this is broad. Hey, B, hey, you nasty W, you're nothing but a slut, you're ugly, you're never going to mount to nothing, where people will speak derogatorily over your life, and if it's done long enough, by certain people, you will find yourself adapting to the derogatory stuff that has been thrown at you. 
And next thing you know, you're looking at yourself through the eyes of the words that have been spoken over you. And can I tell you something? That identity that has been given to you by those words will hinder you from ever becoming the sons of Elohim. And then the church did this to us. There's some stuff the church did to us. The church told us there is none righteous. No, not one. You are a sinner saved by grace. You need to be humble. Some people were so humble, they dropped the H. They're humble. You get what I'm saying? And the, the church gave us an identity and then gave us, many of us, I'm one of those, they gave us this set of ambiguous rules of how to be a member in good standing. So how do I become a man of God? Didn't explain that. How do I become a husband who loved my wife like Messiah loved the church? What does that look like? How do I conduct? I was taught how to conduct myself in the church. But how do I conduct myself in the home? How do I conduct myself in the community? These were ambiguous rules that were given to where now I got to look at examples in the modern era because to try to look like the people in the book, these were not ordinary people. These were super saints and we certainly can't be like them. Even though James says Elijah was a man just like us. Even though Yeshua says the work I did, you should do. These signs shall follow them that believe. And so what the church did to me, on top of what the world did to me, it didn't give me something to walk out. It gave me something to believe in. So now I believe in Jesus, but how do I walk out my faith? What do I do? And see, this is where the commandments come from for. The commandments was not given to a people in bondage. It was given to a people who had been released from bondage to keep from going back into bondage. It was given to a people who were, who understood they were kings and priests. It was given to a people who understood that they were part of a kingdom. They were the kingdom of Israel. They were the kingdom, the sons and daughters of the most high ambassadors. They were royalty people. And that's what the law did to a people. It caused them to see that they had a king, even though they lived in a land, but instead of wanting the king that they had, they want a king they could see. And men began to put men over them. You see, I'm going to tell you something. It's easy to rebel against men. And so ultimately, we all have to stand before the king who will hold us accountable for how we lived our lives. And it's like, okay, well, what rules? How are you going to hold me accountable? To what? What is going to be, oh, judge, your manner of judgment? What are you going to judge me by? 
How are you going to judge me? Are you going to judge me by how often I attended church? Are you going to judge me by how often I paid my tithes? Are you going to judge me by how many people I helped? Are you going to judge me about how good I was? Are you going to judge me because I had a prison ministry or I fed the poor from time to time? What are you going to use to judge me by? And Yeshua made it clearly. He's going to use the law. Many in that day are going to come saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. You're lawless people. You abandon the law, establish your own righteousness by your rules and regulations, and you live by your rules and your standards and your denominations, and you totally ignored mine. And so this woman identifies herself. So I went down that road because you will take on the identity that people give you, or you can take on the identity that he gives you. Now the woman, the woman says something, but her lifestyle shows that she didn't fully understand this. But the woman says something in this passage that even though the Jewish people said they were this or they were that, and they didn't want anything to do with them and they had nothing to do with them. The woman identifies herself as a descendant of Jacob. And basically she's, she's saying, you know, you guys are talking to us and talking to me like that. But my father is the same one. My father is a descendant. My father was Jacob. And who was Jacob? His name was changed to Israel. So my father, because I too came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like you. You're no better than me. That's what she's saying. And based on the location they were in, it tells me, they were in the land of Manasseh, which was the land of Joseph, given to Ephraim and Manasseh. And so it suggests to me that she may have been of Manasseh line based on where Sychar was on the map. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? That's what the woman says, which gave us the well and drink thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Yeshua answered and said unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. So Yeshua speaks to the woman about everlasting life. And I think this will be a good place to stop. But whosoever drinketh of this water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And so Yeshua is talking to this woman about everlasting life. And based on John and where we are in John, his disciples are gone. What really blew me was he has not had this conversation about eternal life with his own disciples. He's sharing with this woman some stuff that his disciples in their absence don't get to hear. And by the time this chapter is over, there's a revival in Samaria. Now, the thing that really, that I really wanted to drive home today, and I want to pray too, is that we focus on the identity that we've been given by him 
and not the identity that we've been given by society. During my childhood, I spent a great deal of my time trying not to embarrass my parents because they told me that I represented the Bailey clan. You're a Bailey. When you go out of here, you're a Bailey. You conduct yourself like a Bailey because the community is going to see you. And if you misconduct, if you act up, it's going to get back to us and we're going to deal with it. So it was a sense of pride to be a Bailey representing my Bailey family. And we had Bailey's, you know, just like you find people today. Now, it didn't take, it was when I got older that I realized that Bailey was Irish. It's like, how did I become, how did I get an Irish name? Mm. So I did the, you know, the ancestry thing and come to find out that I had a, a, a great grandfather who was Irish. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> I think some of y'all know where, where that leads. But the point is, is that coming into Messiah, I have a greater identity than I ever had as a Bailey. Now I have to embrace that. And so do you. Or I could continue to be proud to be a Bailey. When I'm pleased to be a follower of Messiah and a son of Elohim. And all of us have to make these decisions, brothers and sisters. We have to make the decisions. Our children have to make the decisions. Our grandchildren have to make the decisions and none of us can make it for them. But what we can do is live out and walk out our faith to such a degree and not let people try to pull. I am a Bailey. I'm still a Bailey. But my father is not. So I can continue trying to represent the Bailey clan or I can start trying to represent my father who is in heaven. Now, let me tell you, when you start representing your father in heaven, it may clash with your earthly identity. In fact, I can tell you for sure, it will clash. And some of y'all have experienced the clashes. Some of y'all have been beat up, talked down to, dogged, demonized. And one of the things that I wanted to do today, before we do that, though, I'm going to give us opportunity to have some dialogue, is pray for us to embrace our kingdom identity and for our children to embrace their kingdom identity. For our husbands, for our wives, because many of us are having issues with our spouses, with our siblings, with our in-laws, with our folks. And we, we have to learn how to be wise and yet gentle. And that is an art that will only be accomplished 
by surrendering and submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit that is trying to remake us after the image of our Father who is in heaven. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.